Hey, this is Scott Ferguson with Time to Shine Today. And if you really want to learn how to level up your life, you should be listening to the Shadows Podcast with my good friend, Bodie. Right. I want to welcome everyone to another episode of the Shadows Podcast. But before we get started, I have a few quick announcements. First, the Ignite Podcast, hosted by Caleb Pearson, will now be releasing all future episodes each and every Friday across various podcast platforms. So make sure you change your schedule, tune in to last week's episode as well. Own it and divorce it. Taking on your setbacks with Kenneth Carter III. So make sure you check out the Ignite podcast on all available podcast platforms. Also, click on the link tree in this episode's description and head over and subscribe to our new YouTube channel. We have all episodes of the Shadows podcast available. Also, stay tuned this Saturday for a very special YouTube exclusive. It's going to be a Shadows podcast exclusive with former professional boxer and actor Jack O'Halloran. He joins us, and you can only find this on our YouTube channel. It will not be available on the podcast platforms. Jack talks to us about his boxing career. What kept him from having that big bout with Muhammad Ali? How he got into acting? His role as one of the villains in the Superman franchise, Bruce Lee, Mafia, so much more to unpack in that episode. Once again, it will only be available on the Shadows Podcast YouTube channel. So please head over, subscribe, and make sure you check out all future episodes as well. Ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for another episode of the Shadows Podcast. All right, I want to welcome everybody to another episode of The Shadows Podcast. I'm your host, Trip Bodenheimer, and I am excited today to be joined by Dylan Roberts. He is currently in the Coast Guard Academy as a cadet. You said you're about halfway done with it? Uh, I am I'm on my last semester. I am two months away from graduation, and I'll be, re- I'll be reporting to my first unit in June. All right, nice. So yeah, he's currently... Uh, over at the Coast Guard Academy. He is joining us here today. I got connected with him a couple of weeks ago. I had a really good, deep conversation with him a couple of weeks back, and uh, we just thought it would be perfect to have him on here to share his incredible story here with all of our listeners. So where are you currently located at right now for listeners who may have no idea where the Coast Guard Academy is? So the Coast Guard Academy is in New London, Connecticut, and it's uh, actually right on the Thames River, uh, right across from the naval sub base. Pretty big, uh, pretty big base, and uh, it's not too far from my hometown. Born and raised in Portland, Maine. Uh, really, Cape Elizabeth, but born in, in uh, Mercy Hospital in Portland. So just uh, three hours south of that. Okay. So you mentioned you were you were brought up in Portland, Maine. Before we actually get into that, I got to put you through the rapid fire questions. To, to get this whole thing started. He has no idea what questions I'm about to ask him here, but first, favorite fast food burger? Double bacon cheeseburger. Probably from oh. Five Guys. That's a solid choice. Okay, from Five Guys. <laughs> Reliable. What about what about this one? Whataburger or In-N-Out? In-N-Out only because I've been there more. I've only been to Whataburger once. I won't judge you. I was about to hit 
stop recording right now. <laughs> I don't want to shut you for it. Uh, favorite book? Favorite book? I got to say, It's a Guide to the Good Life by William Irvine. It's about stoicism, and it's kind of one of my most life-changing books and kind of had so many aha moments when I read it. So that's always my favorite book. Those stoicism books are like full of that. Like ego is the enemy, obstacle is the way. They do have a lot of those aha moments. Okay, it's a good choice. You could put you could live through the life of one television character or one movie character. Who would you be? Ooh, that one's that one's tough. Um, growing up, I really liked Smokey and the Bandit, so. Mm -hmm. Probably the, the main characters of Smokey and the Bandit. It's exhilarating. I always think back to that movie. Okay. It's a, it's a classic right there. You have two plane tickets. Last question. Two plane tickets. One to anywhere that you've never been and another a return trip to somewhere you've been before. I want to go somewhere I've never been. Um, I would probably say Europe. I just want to backpack at some point in my life. Yeah. Or or Africa, honestly, just somewhere far away. Okay. Where would your return trip be? That's tough. I would say, I would say Alabama. And I haven't been back since I went to prep school there. I know that you're there right now, but there's a lot of people that are in Alabama that have really impacted and changed my life and helped me over the course of the last couple of years that I just haven't been able to go back and see. And so it'd be really awesome to go back there sometime and get to see all those people that have changed my life. Okay. All right. So you survived the rapid fire questions. And now we're going to dive into the story of Dylan Roberts. So you mentioned you were born in Portland, Maine. Tell us about your family life growing up. So I got to say, I, I grew up in a pretty normal family. My dad was a career firefighter. He ended up as the South Portland fire chief and then retired, I want to say, after 35 or 36 years. I'm the youngest of three. I have two older brothers. My oldest brother is currently an Army Ranger in the 75th. He's actually deployed right now in Iraq. And then my middle brother is getting his PhD at the University of Notre Dame in electrical engineering. And growing up, my mom, she, um, she worked for Hannaford Brothers Corporation. She didn't like the corporate world. She was really unhappy. And, you know, my mom and my dad kind of had that conversation that if you're not happy, uh, you know, why, why not leave? And so my dad really supported us a lot growing up. And she went back to school to get a degree in education. She was a business degree, um, bachelor's of science out of college, but she went back to get a, a degree in education. And then she's been teaching ever since. Um, but both of them, are really, really big role models to me. And, you know, they've been together my whole life, married 29 years now. So nice. Your dad was a firefighter. He was, yes. And uh, he retired, he retired two years ago, but uh, he'd been working my whole life doing 24 hours on 48 hours off. And uh, it definitely made me grow up fast. Also, when, uh, whenever he came home from work, I knew the chores had to be done because there's no ifs, ands or buts about it. <laughs> That was Susan Bodenheimer as well. Like I came home and like before she stepped foot in the door, those chores better be finished <laughs> growing up. So you said you had to grow up, you know, really quick. Like what are some things you, in hindsight, looking back, 
uh, really learned about yourself during your childhood? Well, so this is probably the most interesting thing, but I was born on October 15th. And in the state of Maine, the cutoff is October 16th. And my mom would always joke, you know, that she was she was having me on the 15th because she wasn't going to wait a whole year when the time came to put me into school. And so growing up through elementary, middle school and, and even high school, I was the youngest person in my class um, on top of, you know, having two other brothers, just being the youngest of three. It was really different because when my friends were doing, you know, all these things such as getting jobs and then getting their license, I was always generally a year behind them. And uh, I was always the youngest in the bunch. And, and same with sports, too. I was in the seventh grade and I was still playing Little League when um, <laughs> I know that's a perspective when um, all my friends were playing middle school baseball. And I was like, I have, I have a Little League game. I have to you got to. you got to pitch a machine. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, but yeah, and then, and then really just, you know, I would say one of the things is, um, and we'll definitely get into it. There's, there's definitely a lot of expectations when you're the third child and, and both my two other brothers definitely, definitely had it squared away. And so then I, you know, I'm born and kind of having those same expectations, uh, was, was also challenging. So what were some of those expectations that you felt like you had to live up to with your brothers? Well, so um, my, my middle brother is just really academically gifted. You know, I'll, I'll never kind of have those academic talents that he had. And he would always do really, really good in school. And uh, one of the things for me, you know, that, that I really disliked was kind of when we'd get report cards back, um, also knowing that they'd be compared to my brothers. And, you know, I could have a transcript with a bunch of A's and then I have like one or two C's and, you know, that's the one thing that my parents focused on. It wasn't those A's or B's. It was, you know, why do you have a C in this class? And I could have a really, really good transcript, but it was, it was always focusing on, on those things. And then um, athletically it was good just because both my brothers were athletes and I like that competition aspect. Um, they both were MVPs for their respective sports and all state players. So I, I definitely had to live up to that, but I love that part just because I wanted to also outshine them or try to outshine them however I could. You were a little league MVP. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Maybe I peaked at 12, but <laughs> 12 so, was, was my career highlight. You and I talked about this when we uh, first got connected, but we were talking about your grades and how um, you, you did have like a C which had all these other A's and it was something that even I'm guilty of or have been guilty of in the past with my daughter is that I'll look at her uh, performance report and I'm like 93, 92, 94, 78. What, and I, I zone in on that 78 and focus in on that. But what, what kind of impact do you think that has on a kid? Cause that's something I've had to back off of a lot and kind of change the perspective and focus more on those good grades. What kind of impact do you think that has on a kid? I mean, generally thinking, kind of, you know, speaking for myself, sometimes I think it can kind of have a negative impact because, you know, maybe you're thinking I'm not doing enough or maybe I'm not good enough. And there's a quote um, that my friend Dave says, he says, the purpose of praise is to tell people what to do more of. And I, I never heard that quote before he told it to me, but now that I think about it is that, you know, when I show my parents that report card and there's that C and they focus and hone in on that C, I'm like, you know, maybe they're not happy with me about all the other A's. 
but if my parents were to, to be like, hey, you know, I'm proud of you for all those A's, then without them even saying it, I'm like, you know, I really want to get that C up. Um, because, you know, approval is such a big thing, especially growing up in, in the eyes of your parents. I know that at least for me and my dad and my mom, when they would tell me that they were happy or proud of me, it would mean the world. So when they, you know, say they're disappointed in me for the C or focus on that C, then it makes me think that I'm not doing enough. Yeah. I think that's really important to discuss that because that's something that just recently I was, I think it was after talking to you. It's weird how things, you know, it's like the stars are aligned, but I talked to you and I saw something on Instagram that was posted very similar to that. It's like focus on the good as opposed to this one. And it really changed my view on my daughter showing me her grades and things that she's doing as well. Keep that positivity. So now the, the next part of the story that, you know, I want to talk about is um, something I know it's pretty sensitive uh, to talk about, but it was something that you uh, and I, when we talked to you, opened up to me about, but let our listeners know, you know, if you don't mind about um, what transpired when you were 14 years old and how that kind of shaped you into who you are today. Definitely. So this is a um, pretty significant part of my life and, and one of the maybe the darkest places I've been to so far. But when I was in high school, when I was a sophomore in high school, it was the fall. So you're thinking November and Maine, uh, sunsets getting earlier every day, it's getting colder, all the leaves have already fallen off the trees. It's just kind of dark and gloomy in my mind when I when I think back to it. But um, it was really it was really a challenging time for me, both academically and with my parents. Maybe it's just kind of those teenage years where, you know, you start to find your parents or there's tension. Uh, again, kind of just me, me thinking, maybe I'm not enough, maybe I'm not doing enough. And it was it was November, my sophomore year, and I just had a pretty bad fight with my mom. And the only thing that I could think to myself was, was that like, maybe this world was better off without me. You know, I'm not doing enough. The only thing I do, and my parents would, would sometimes jokingly say this, but my dad would say, your brothers uh, turn my hair as gray. And you made my hairs fall out and just kind of like me taking that personally and then also just feeling that I was disappointing my parents. I decided that I wanted to take my life. And this was something I, I hadn't told anyone this uh, for seven years now. So I just opened up about it this year, even my closest friends. But that night in November, after a fight with my mom, I went to my room. I was wearing a, a thin sweatshirt. I took it off and I, I tied a really, really tight knot around my neck. And then I tied four more and, and convinced myself that the more I tie, um, the weaker I'll get and not be able to kind of untie that. And right before I'd done that, I texted my oldest brother just because we were really close. And I said, hey, I love you. Thanks for everything you've done for me. And I think, I think that tipped him off because, you know, just a couple minutes later, my mom had came in my room. And at that point I was unconscious. I was laying on the floor and just kind of from from what she told me, she tried untying it and was calling 911. I think my dad was working that night and the ambulance came. And after trying to strangle myself and commit suicide in my room, I woke up in, in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. And I spent I spent two weeks in the hospital. It, it was voluntary. It was, it was my decision because I really just kind of wanted to know the root, root of why I felt the way I did in such a way that made me go to that point. 
um, where I took those thoughts and, and actually put it into action. And it was really a dark, it was really a dark time in my life, but, you know, kind of through that, I, I had a, a lot of great talks with my parents. We, we went through a family, uh, family therapy and I kind of started to, to understand it. But at the same time, you know, I was still, still facing my own battles. And, and now that I reflect back on it, the reason kind of why in my mind, I think of that is because growing up my parents, you know, they're, they're pretty standard parents in, in terms of my dad not being one to show emotion and my parents not really ever showing signs of weakness. And so when I was struggling, I didn't know how to tell anyone. Like, I didn't know back then that it was okay not to be okay, which is something I say all the time now, you know, it's okay not to be okay. But I didn't know how to, how to tell anyone that I wasn't okay. And I didn't know how to tell my dad because, you know, I'd, I'd seen my dad lose his, his mom. And, and even through that, my, me losing my grandmother, I didn't see him get too emotional at all. And so that was really, that was really challenging for me. And so kind of through that year, I struggled a little bit more, but the thing was, is, is after that incident, I told my dad that if I was ever struggling in a dark place again, I would, I would, uh, I would text him. And in the spring, I was kind of having a tough day too. And I just texted him. I was like, dad, like I'm not having a good day. And he, uh, he picked me up from school and we go to get ice cream. And then he, uh, he brings me to the beach and, and uh, mind you, like, this is my dad, someone that's not vulnerable with me ever. Um, it's hard to kind of get his praise and not want to show emotion. He said, you know, I'm not sure what you're going through right now, but I kind of want to just tell you this story about me when I was, I was 19 years old. And he said, I was in love with this girl and I really thought I was going to marry her. I thought she was going to be the one and I had it all set. And he said, but then one day she just broke my heart. And I already kind of had my future planned out with her and I didn't know how to navigate past that. And he said, I didn't want to go to work. I didn't want to get out of bed. And just kind of for weeks, I was just really upset. And he said, but had that girl not broken my heart, I would have never met your mom. I wouldn't have three amazing kids to account for. And kind of him just saying, you know, everything happens for a reason. And I could just see tears in his eyes. And at that, at that point in time, at 14 years old, that was the first time I'd ever seen my dad really get vulnerable with me. And that was the last time in my mind, you know, that I was like, I'm never gonna have a bad day again to the point where I, I wanna hurt myself or do something crazy because I know that I have my dad in my corner and I can tell him and it's, and it's gonna be okay. Um, but, but fast forward just, just a couple of years, I, uh, I wanted to go to the Coast Guard Academy. I was a senior in high school, I was applying. I knew I always wanted to be in the military. I, uh, I remember being 12 years old and watching Black Hawk Down and saying, you know, this is what I wanna do. But as I, as I progressed through high school and uh, I got recruited by the Coast Guard Academy for baseball, I thought that that would be the perfect way to both serve and then also be doing a humanitarian mission and saving lives because that that purpose of saving lives really speaks to me and so i applied things were starting to go really good in my life i i focused really hard on academics and athletics and just kind of keeping my priorities in line and in december my senior year i found out i got a conditional appointment and then i remember coming home 
in March and I opened a letter up in the mail and it was saying, you know, like, thank you for your interest in the Coast Guard Academy, but our medical, ex we had a medical examination and we denied you. So they basically said, thanks, but we can't bring you aboard. And uh, they said, best of luck in your future endeavors. And I had put all my eggs in one basket and I had no idea what I was gonna do. And so at that point, um, I kind of was like, wow, I'm at a crossroads. Is this something, does this, does this moment define me for the rest of my life? Does the actions that I took at 14 years old define me? And I met with the Dean of Admissions and he said, we, we send students to, to Mary Military Institute for a scholar year. He said, you can go there for a year, but there's no guarantee that you get a medical waiver. And you know, I said, I'm going to take that chance because I don't want to be defined by this for my whole life. And so I go down to Marion, I post a 4.0 GPA my first semester. And right getting back my second semester, I also applied to the Naval Academy, Merchant Marine Academy. And I got accepted to both, but I got letters saying, you know, like, thanks, but no thanks. You're not getting through our medical exam. And so I got denied. And then it was, it was kind of just two months after that in April that the Coast Guard Academy said, you know, like we're giving you a medical waiver, um, but it's only a temporary one. So, you know, you're gonna kind of have to prove yourself, but we are granting you acceptance. And then in 2017, I, I entered the Coast Guard Academy. First of all, thank you for opening up and feeling comfortable enough to share that story. I uh, really do appreciate it. And I know it takes a lot to share it. Like you said, it took you about seven years to, to really start telling people about it. Going back to that conversation that your dad had with you, how much did that help you for, uh, by being able to open up and, and both of y'all being transparent with each other when you did eventually get that first um, medical disqualification letter? More than you know, and I think that's something, and I'm not a parent yet, so I can't attest to it, but I think as, as kids and, you know, just, people growing up, you know, the words and the things that parents say impacts their kids more than they might ever imagine, you know, cause we're always watching you and we're always listening and it makes up a lot of who we are today. And so to just see my dad go to that, like that level of vulnerability and depth. And I always say people only want to go to the depth you're willing to go to. Yeah. And so when I talk about, you know, it, it's okay not to be okay, but I never knew how to express that. When my dad was vulnerable with me, it just made that much more of a trusting relationship with him because we were able to just talk about things. And even, even with my mom, because the analogy in the story that I say is, you know, imagine you have a teenager they're at a high school party and they're uncomfortable and they want to go home and they're like, well, you know, I can call my mom or my dad, but they're probably going to be really pissed at me and I'm going to be grounded. So I don't want to do that. So say yeah. you take the chance, you take the chance to uh, go home with friends or, you know, you have a friend that's drunk driving, whatever it may be. But it was kind of after that, that I could be honest with my mom and my dad about, you know, even my failures and they just love me unconditionally. And it, it's kind of that dichotomy where, you know, they say like strict parents raise sneaky kids. And it, and it was that shifting point where it's like, I don't want to disappoint my parents anymore. Yeah. 
Um, but I know that I have their trust so I can be open and honest with them and they're going to love me and accept me for who I am. And, and the biggest thing in that, even through just kind of the family therapy, being the youngest of three, is that when you have children and you have more than one, you know, you have two or three children, you know, they're not coming out on conveyor belts, factory items. They're not all identical. Mm-hmm. Each, each one of your children has, has their own personality. And, and it was really just through that, that my parents know I'm different than my, my brothers. My middle brother is different than my oldest brother. And I was just able to be completely authentic with my parents from that point moving forward. And when you have that sense of authenticity, and when I talk about, you know, not having those bad days, is when you can be open and honest, you know, even with my parents, I never felt like I was carrying a burden or carrying a weight on my back alone, because I always knew I had the, the support and the, the trust of my parents. What advice would you have for someone out there that feels like they don't have that strong support system like you have? I would say you have to you have to be the one to to have that conversation first as hard as it may be when I talk about people only are willing to go to the depth that you're willing to go to as a parent you got to know like your children aren't going to be the ones to go to that depth first if they've never seen you be authentic and vulnerable and go to that depth and it's the same way maybe even in the military you know with the chain of command if you have a a commanding officer that doesn't show vulnerability and doesn't kind of show any weak sides you know, why are, why are you going to go up to him and be like, hey, you know, I'm kind of going through all this. But if you have a commanding officer that's vulnerable and talks about maybe his or her failures too, then you're more open to talk about that. And, and I just think for me, I lashed out in a way because I didn't know how to say it with my words. And even just to the extent of knowing, I, if my mom didn't come a couple minutes earlier, I wouldn't be here today. And, and I fully committed to that, but I would just say, you know, be that person to go to that depth first and be, be courageous. And, and you'll realize that, that everyone has their own struggles and maybe it's a facade and maybe it's because of social media and Instagram that everyone wants to pretend that their life is great. But seven years later, I, and, and I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit, but I tell my story and I, I publish it. And I had so many people that I had never met before, didn't know anything about, share with me their darkest days and their stories. And then some people just message me and say, thank you for saying the words I never could. And that just made me realize even more that, you know, everyone has their own struggles and everyone has their own story. And if you feel that you're in a place and, and you're struggling, you know, if you tell someone, you're going to be surprised by what they say back. And they're going to say, no way you feel that way too. I feel that way, but I just didn't want to be the one to go there first. I think you also bring up another point, which, you know, it, it reminds me social media, social media can be very dangerous, um, especially for, for younger individuals in their, their teenage or younger adult years. And the one that I used to go over when we would teach, suicide prevention to our students at Airman Leadership School was uh, Madison Holleran. She was a track runner from University of Pennsylvania and her parents, there were no warning signs, nothing like that on her Instagram account, but uh, she ended up taking her life uh, because she was struggling. And, but 
social media can be kind of a mask. So what would you say to parents out there whose kids, you know, are living on Instagram and Facebook and all these other social media platforms? Cause it, it really can be scary. I would say, I would say focus on, on those personal interactions with them, you know, because growing up and, and that's why I think about too, you know, growing up, I didn't get a cell phone until high school and it certainly wasn't an iPhone. I think it was a flip phone, the razor yeah. and, you know, it wasn't social media, but then as I got to the end, end of high school and into college, um, social media has been more prevalent in the iPhone. They have what the iPhone 12 now. Um, and even my first year at the Coast Guard Academy, we weren't allowed to have social media at all. So I, I was really detached from it. But the thing is, is, is growing up, you know, if I wanted to keep myself entertained, I would go outside and I would go outside with my brothers or I would walk up the street with my friends. And a lot of times people just, parents just give their kids iPads um, or cell phones. And I think of it, you know, why does a second grader need a cell phone? Why can't it just be like the older days? You know, if, if your parents need you, they're just gonna call the office or they'll send you down to the office if they really need you, but you don't need to have your phone in class. And even my mom teaching, she says for middle schoolers, you know, they won't get off their, their cell phones, they're texting under the desk. But the thing is, is it, it weakens the relationships that we have right in front of us. Because then, you know, even today, I'm sure if you, if you look up and you're around a group of people, you'll see that a lot of people are on their cell phones. And when you go out all to over the place, you'll see that a lot of people are on their cell phones and they're not having conversations with each other. And as a parent, you know, I'm not a parent yet, but I would say, you know, maybe one or two days a week, you focus on spending family time together. And when you come home from work, and the reason I say God to the Good Life is one of my favorite books is because it talks about a stoic dad and a non-stoic dad is, is the sense of time in reality kind of, kind of leaves us with social media. We just become so consumed by it that a stoic dad really, when he comes home from work every day, he's involved in, in his child's life. How is school today? How are classes going? How are your friends? How are sports? And a lot of times, you know, people just come home, parents will just come home and, and they're checked out and they're, you know, checking their emails, stuff like that. Their kids are in their room on their phones or on Instagram trying to, trying to get, you know, the next photo with a bunch of likes and comparing it and being like, you know, I can't follow this person because they don't have enough likes on their pages. And it's just like, it's just not authentic at all. Um, I would say if this is you or, or, you know, maybe with your, with your kids, you know, take a step back from social media. And once you do, you're like, why did I even need this in the first place? Um, but I will attest LinkedIn uh, that I build a lot of really incredible relationships and, and meeting you too. So I think, you know, that, that can, that can be different, but it, it's all kind of how you take it. And I think with social media, a lot of people, you know, they don't really care about what anyone else is doing. They just want to, they just want to, you know, post what they're doing and make their life seem all exciting. That can go to the facade of, you know, everyone being like, oh, my life is super great. And then the depression factor can go into it too. And I mean, the correlation with social media usage and, and suicidal ideation among teenagers is because you're comparing lives now. You're like, wow, they have a, they have a better life than me. They're traveling they're always having more fun and I'm home and I'm in my room and, you know, I have no one to hang out with. And it looks like all these people are having fun is that social media can, can be really dangerous. And, and it is that awareness to recognize when you're using your phone too much or if you're on it. And I mean, the great thing about the iPhone is, is uh, in settings, even just screen time, 
you know, you can look and see how long you're on your phone every day. Yeah. And if it's an alarming number, then you can be like, wow, you know, maybe I shouldn't pick my phone up every, every 10 minutes. So it's dopamines. You got to get those likes. People don't get <laughs> the amount of likes or the amount of followers as other people. And like you said, that comparison piece is, it's just dangerous. It's very, very dangerous. And I mean, it's something that even myself as a father, um, I worry about, I worry about with, with my kids is, you know, you, it can be mask as to where you live these amazing lives and outside of social media and and everything that you've talked about you've kind of taken your situation and turned it from um potential tragedy into huge triumph and you're actually working on a book at such a young age um talk about tell us about this book that you got working on absolutely um so really i never never imagined that i'd be writing a book but I will say that kind of one of the coping skills that I have is, is writing. And so whenever maybe I'm having a long day or a stressful day, you know, I really enjoy writing. And I started writing my, my freshman year here at the academy. It's a pretty tough year. And that would kind of be my, my escape. So I'd just come back to my room and I'd just kind of write about stories of me growing up or as I reflect maybe why um, I made the decision I did. I read a book, Why People Die by Suicide, was really curious about um, psychology and philosophy. And so I'd kind of just, you know, write my story through that. And, you know, I wrote, I wrote probably 20 to 30,000 words in just kind of a Word document. And then I put it aside in this past summer. And, and have you, um, I hadn't told my story to anyone. So that was kind of my way of telling my story just to myself, because even my best friends growing up, they didn't know that that I tried to commit suicide. And I was away from school for two weeks. And when I went back to school, I, uh, I told my friends that I was on a hunting trip for two weeks and I didn't have cell phone service just because I didn't want anyone to think of me differently. I didn't want to be attached to that stigma of mental health or what I thought that stigma of mental health was at the time. And so this past summer, I was... I was at my summer unit, so I was I was at a, uh, a Coast Guard boat in Miami, Florida, and it's seven, almost seven years from the incident. I hadn't told anyone, and there's a father, and he's on board. He's a he's a BM one, and he was talking about how he has a teenage son, almost around my age, that was kind of going through the same things I was, and he was talking about how uh, he's been kind of depressed lately. He talks about how he doesn't want to be here anymore and just kind of emotional. And this was my first time where I was like, you know, if I, if I tell him kind of about my story and what I went through and what I wish I could have gotten out of my parents or what I wish I had with my parents. And then when I did get with my parents and what really helped me, maybe it helps him. And so that was the first time I really opened up and told my story. And when I did, I kind of realized the impact that it had because the story wasn't about me anymore, but it was about helping others. Yeah. And so, on that week of seven years, I published an article on LinkedIn and it was seven years of that weekend. And for the first time, I, before I published it, I told my best friends and I sent them the article and they're like, holy cow, they were taken back. They're like, I can't believe that this ever happened to you. You seem so happy. You were a varsity athlete. You were popular. You always, you know, um, had everything squared away. So that that's kind of, you, you say, you know, it can happen in silence and nobody knows, nobody has, a single idea that you're, you're depressed or what you're going through. And they said, it is your obligation to share this with others because you have no idea how many people it's going to help. 
And so, and so that was, that was all it took for me to post on LinkedIn. And when I did, again, kind of just telling you, I had a lot of people that reached out to me and just said, thanks for saying the words I never could, or just telling me their story. And then one person said, does it really get better? And I said, it does. And kind of through that, I started writing a book and um, it got me into Angels 14. Dave, he read my article. He's, he's a host of Angels 14, this, uh, this weekly group that I'm a part of. And he was like, man, he was like, you got to share your story. And so I put, I put pen to paper really just on my computer. And uh, it's, it's like 45,000 words now. It's been edited three times. And it's just kind of talking about that stigma of mental health. You know, how I overcame, how I overcame it. There's sections that talk about, you know, directly to teenagers and then sections just for parents. And then kind of the, the advice that I got from my parents. And I guess I don't at the time realize it, but being 22 years old now, removed from my high school self and learning, I'm like, wow, you know, a lot of these lessons that my parents told me when I was 15 years old and I thought I knew everything, you know, at 22 years old, I'm like, wow, my parents are so smart. You know, you think you're a know-it-all and then you really know that you don't know that much at all. And so that's kind of me. I, I wrote a whole chapter really just to my dad and, and just thanking him for, for being patient with me um, because I thought back then I knew it all. And I didn't, and, and I had to learn the, the hard way. Has your dad read that chapter yet? He hasn't. I haven't shared, I haven't shared the book with my parents. Uh, a couple of people have read it, uh, yeah. mostly just, just for editing purposes, but I definitely can't wait till he does. I even, I even posted uh, on LinkedIn some of my greatest life lessons from my dad and, and kind of going back to the social media. The one thing my dad would always say to me you know, is don't compare yourself to others. Just always focus on what you have right in front of you. Because if you spend your life comparing yourself to others, then you're never going to be happy. So just be happy with what you have. Another thing I wanted to talk to you about that you brought up, mental health. There is this stigma around mental health to where if I go get seen, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at this point of my career. If I go get seen by mental health, it's going to ruin my career. What would you say to those people? So for one, I know that it's not going to ruin your career um, because that, that even just at the academy, the stigma, people don't want to go down to the clinic because they don't want to be, um, be diagnosed. And I didn't want to be diagnosed. So now I was diagnosed with depression and suicidal ideation. And, you know, the reasons for me getting medically disqualified in the first place, you know, you're, you associate yourself with that and you're like, wow, so does that mean I'm labeled now for the rest of my life? Am I Am I suicidal? Am I depressed? So I have a mood disorder. Um, but I will say, you know, once you're in the military, in terms of the stigma mental health, and especially now that they're trying to do a lot with suicide prevention and even the alarming rates of, of veteran suicides, is that really, you know, don't think about your career, but think about yourself and put yourself first because you are the priority. And if, you know, you're not there mentally and, and you're going through stuff, you want to get that taken care of. And, and I know you might be like, well, this is my income or this is my job. This is job security for me. You know, your life is more important than anything else. And a lot of times too, I know that there are people here at the Coast Guard Academy that have gone through stuff and, you know, they keep them in. It's, it's really hard for the military to medically disqualify you once you're already in. 
And so you can get the help you need and stay in the military. And that's something that the academy's, you know, been trying to tell cadets. But just know that your health comes first. And at the end of the day, you are what matters. And the military, I think, is is doing a good job now more than ever trying to trying to get people to talk about it because nobody wants to talk about it and nobody wants to say, you know, I'm not okay or I'm having I'm having a hard day. But to know that it's okay not to be okay and it's not a sign of weakness. And you know, when you talk to people about it, even me just talking to other people in the military, um, you know, COVID this year, it's been really hard for a lot of people. A lot of military bases are pretty, pretty shut down along with, you know, colleges and universities, but there's a lot of quarantines and, and really just people in isolation. And so it is hard, but when you have those conversations, you know, you're not, you're not going through it alone. Um, and so I would say if you were in the military and you're struggling, you know, talk to your best friend, you know, tell your best friend first. And, and if you really want to get help, you know, get help and know that your mental health and your health is priority over anything else. You mentioned some of the help that you've had along the way, Angels 14. I know you kind of gave us a little brief snapshot of who they are, but if you don't mind telling our audience more about Angels 14. Absolutely. So the greatest group I've ever been a part of, Angels 14. Um, so it's co-hosted by Jeffrey Knight and um, my good friend Dave. And Dave invited me, invited me to one of the, one of the, I would say kind of episodes, but it's, it's not really an episode. We just meet every, every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time. And it's really just a bunch of veterans and allies and people that support and care about veterans. Uh, there's a couple that are selective duty as well. But, you know, we have these authentic conversations every week and, and we go to that depth and we're vulnerable. And, and I had never met any of these people aside from Dave when I went on for my first time. And my first time on, I was talking to them about, about my story um, and I shared the LinkedIn article with them. But every week we, we just talk about these stigmas that kind of go on in the military in ways to get over fears and the way to be authentic with each other and others, um, how vulnerability is a strength. Dave always says the purpose of praise is to tell people what to do more of, but more importantly, uh, every act of kindness has a ripple effect in the logical end. And so really, you know, so Dave was a fighter pilot. We talk about getting airspeed. And so kind of that Friday at 12 PM, being with other people, you know, that can share what they've been through and allies that can, that can talk about it and talk through it with us. It's just really incredible because it gives you that airspeed for the week. You get to meet a lot of other people and I've had a lot of conversations offline. Um, that's again, how I met you through Vaughn is super awesome. And then uh, a friend Grizz. So we both wanted to read more and we started this thing where every other week we, we hop on zoom and we have a, a like a hour book review with each other. We both send each other three books. And then we pick the one that we like the most. And then we're like, hey, I'll, I'll talk to you in two weeks after we're done reading this. And it's kind of like an accountability partner because we both wanted to read more. But um, yeah, I haven't missed a single week since since January, since I've been back, because it really is the best part of my week. And it's, um, and it's awesome. If people want to find out more about Angels 14, where would you point them to? I would point them to LinkedIn, even my LinkedIn. Um, 
it's every every Friday at noon, and and generally Jeff will Jeff will do a post of it, and uh, I share it, or um, or just through my feed, just message me, and I'll send the Zoom link, and anyone is welcome. You know, veterans, active duty, allies. If you have family that served, or you know, even even if you have no military connection and you're just going through something, or you just have something heavy on your chest, this is a, a group where you can be authentic with you know anywhere between like 20 and 40 or more people and you know there's no judgment it's it's just a really awesome conversation and there's a lot of positivity out of it too it, and and just packed of leadership nuggets your overall journey i know i ask you about like your childhood and stuff but like your overall journey biggest thing you learned about yourself and you're still really really young you're a lot younger than me right now but like what is the biggest thing you've learned about yourself I would say the the biggest thing was that when I was when I was younger, I used to think I was a know-it-all and kind of had that mentality. And, you know, I learned that I don't know everything. And really, the best way to approach things is asking questions. Um, I learned that I'm more of a feeler than I am a thinker, because even just kind of with myself, and I think the hardest part sometimes can be to be honest with yourself, even when no one's around. Um, and you know, I wouldn't want to be identified as a feeler. Like, think I'm think I'm like soft or mushy, however you want to define it. But you know, empathy is is a big part of me, and that's kind of kind of something that I think has has helped me a lot. In I don't know, that's that's something I think about because even just through like the Myers Briggs, um, you know, because there's there's these two perceptions of of who you want to be or who you are, and sometimes we can't be honest with ourselves. For me, I always ask what my blind spots are whenever, whenever I'm getting reported back on every semester. Uh, this is something I've always done, but it's just ask my blind spots because I want to see the things that other people see that sometimes I don't catch in myself. And so I think with the biggest thing of learning about myself is asking questions, asking how I can you know be better or have a better impact to others, what my blind spots might be, and then also just just being better at taking feedback because I used to think when I was younger that feedback wasn't a gift, but feedback is a gift. And when people tell you things, you know, you should, you should really, you know, sometimes you take things with a grain of salt, you know, take what you want, leave what you don't, but feedback is a gift and you gotta be um, like, I don't know, maybe just aware enough to know that people are trying to help you when they tell you that. And even if they're not, you know, and even if someone makes a rude comment, just to have the self-control and the power not to let other people kind of jerk you around and be in control of your emotions. And that's kind of through stoicism. It's just, you know, the whole guide in stoicism really is just focusing on the things that you can control in your life. And reading that book kind of was like, am I in the driver's seat or is somebody else in the driver's seat? And so that was, that was a big thing for me. Then last question for you. 20 years from now, where do you see yourself? The first thing I think of is, is just happy. Um, I think goals are really important. I think, you know, my mom always tells me she wants, she wants me to do 20 years in the Coast Guard. And so 20 years, I guess I'd be at retirement. Um, she's like, you know, you get a pension, all that, you know, Coast Guard's great. But at the same time, I always just want to do what makes me happy. And I want to do something that brings purpose to my life. And that is far more important 
than making money or you know being in this high prestigious position you know maybe maybe you asked me that a year ago and i'd be like oh i want to be a ceo of a big company or you know i want to be i want to be a captain in the coast guard and you know maybe those things happen but the thing that's most important to me is just happiness and family so just making sure that 20 years from now i have a really good relationship with my parents um, maybe you know have kids and make them my priority and and i really think about that and when you ask me that i think about you know just some of the some of the books i've read like think like a monk or even um the monk who sold this ferrari because in a materialistic world that we live in right now everyone could be chasing like their dream job or the money and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm 22 years old. I'm, I certainly don't have that, that money right now, but I guess it's good to kind of realize that <laughs> before I have the money and hopefully I don't get, get tainted by it, but, you know, just chase happiness and, and um, do what makes you happy every day. And that might change, you know, maybe five years in the Coast Guard, I'm like, you know, this has been fun, but uh, you know, I'm not having as much fun anymore. So I want to do something else. And I just hope that I look back and always knew that I was courageous enough to make those tough changes in my life um, if the time came and I wasn't stuck in a, a, in a job I don't like. What final words do you have for our listeners? The final word is that I would say it's, it's always okay not to be okay. Um, and it's better to be yourself than pretend to be somebody that you aren't. I think that sticks with me and resonates with me the most. Um, you know, always be yourself in this world and you will attract the right people. Because sometimes we feel that we need to keep up with other people and we have to put on this facade or this show in order to impress others. But I think that you will find the most happiness in life when you are your true self and you attract others that like you for the way that you are and you don't care as much. And that, that for me is the biggest thing. Well, I cannot thank you enough for not only wanting to do this, but for opening up and sharing your story and all the amazing things you're doing right now from attending the Coast Guard Academy and writing a book, getting out there doing Angels 14. I mean, you're just doing some remarkable, remarkable things right now. So I personally wanna thank you for this experience. And I definitely feel like your message can resonate and help so many of our listeners out there. So definitely keep in touch with you. Definitely, uh, I look forward to seeing you at those Angels 14 meetings and um, we'll definitely keep the audience posted on your book as well. Absolutely, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure and I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Well, folks, that is going to conclude this episode of the Shadows Podcast.